Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. We're going to jump into our study of Hebrews. If you're new today, we, we do series through the Bible, books of the Bible, and right now we're doing a series on the book of Hebrews that we've entitled Stand Strong. Because we're learning truth that will help us to do exactly that. Just like the testimony we read of the lady who who said, I don't want to miss out on hearing the voice of the Spirit, and so God, speak to me, and whatever you ask me to do, I'm going to do it. Give me an opportunity. She goes to that grocery store, lays hands on a woman, and that woman is healed. God wants to work through every one of our lives. God wants to reveal his power in you and through you. And one of the things that studying the Bible does is it strengthens us. It encourages us. We hear God speak to us as we're hearing the word of God. So we've been making our way through the book of Hebrews. I have mentioned that there are seven warnings in the book of Hebrews. And we're currently looking at the second of those seven warnings. It's a warning against unbelief that starts in chapter 3 and verse 6 and goes all the way to chapter 4 and verse 13. Last time we saw the five dangers of unbelief. Let me just remind you of them. When, When people are operating in unbelief, they lose courage. They stop trusting God to do the miracle only he can do, and they get their eyes off of God and get their eyes on themselves, which is always a recipe for spiritual disaster. If you and I look at ourselves, we get discouraged. If we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we'll be constantly encouraged and filled with confidence. Unbelief never has enough proof. Faith sees what God is doing and believes he'll do more. But unbelief questions everything with questions like, well, that's happening, but why isn't this happening? Unbelief always looks at what's not happening and wants proof for what it sees happen. Faith, on the other hand, says, man, if God's doing that, he's going to do even more. He can do that, and he can do more. Number three, unbelief wavers between faith and faithfulness. It, it, one minute is believing God, but most often is wavering and saying, you know what, well, yeah, I think he could, I think he might, but what if he doesn't, and I'm not sure. When a person wavers in unbelief, James says, don't expect to receive anything from God. Number four, unbelief hardens the heart. What happens is it's so busy questioning if it's the voice of God or if it is asking all kinds of questions that it won't obey the voice of God. And when you don't obey the voice of God, pretty soon you can't hear the voice of God. Number five, unbelief diminishes God's blessing in your life. If you and I want to know the blessed life and God wants you to, It's incumbent upon us that we walk by faith. Later in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us this. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He'll reward you for seeking him. 
He will honor you for looking to him. Now, as we come to Hebrews chapter four, he's continuing his argument. And part of what he wants us to understand is that there is salvation that is available. But not if we harden our heart. There's salvation if we'll believe. His concern is that if people don't know the Lord, that they meet him. And what he does, because he's writing to Jewish people, he presents salvation with the analogy of it's like a Sabbath rest. One of the things you don't want to do when you read the book of Hebrews and you come to chapter 4 is all of a sudden think he's talking about that one day in seven rests, the Sabbath, which one day in seven we should set aside to rest and, and let God recreate us because rest doesn't come just because you stop working. Rest comes when you understand what life's about and who the author of life is and you rest in him. And that is a picture of salvation. So the writer of Hebrews compares salvation to the benefits of a Sabbath rest. Jesus called salvation rest. In his invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. When you come to salvation, there's a resting that takes place. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. So to know Jesus, to know the Lord, to have that salvation experience, to be right with God, brings rest to your spirit and life to you. Now, as we make our way through Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 1 through 13, I want you to notice four areas that the writer of Hebrews addresses relative to this salvation rest, what it means to walk with God, be right with God, be born again. And what he does is he tells us, first of all, about the promise of rest. Let's look at it, beginning in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 18. We're going to pick it up here because in the original, there's no chapter breaks, there's no verses, and so those are artificial and sometimes you start a new chapter, and if it says, therefore, you got to remember what it's there for, right? Whatever it says, when you see therefore, it's looking back to what's already been said. So Hebrews 3.18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The thing that keeps people from giving their heart to Jesus. The thing that keeps people from being right with God is unbelief. He says, therefore, because that's true, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And we're going to talk about that just for a moment. The promise of rest still stands. What does that mean? It means you can still be saved today. If you've never given your heart to Christ, you can do it right now. You can do it at the end of the service when we give the invitation. If you're away from God, you can rededicate your life today, right now. No one is guaranteed tomorrow. You don't know whether you'll even be here tomorrow. 
You don't know that Jesus might not come back at the end of today. And the era of grace as we know it is over. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. You're not guaranteed tomorrow, but you do have today. And the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4 and verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. What are we to fear? We're to fear not getting saved. You ought to be afraid of not being right with God. You ought, to, you ought to fear that unbelief would keep you from responding to the invitation to receive Christ. You ought to, you ought to have concern in your heart. You ought to have fear, he says, about not rededicating your life, about living in a state where you're not right with God, where you're away from God, where you're not responsive to God. You ought to fear missing out on heaven. You ought to fear being in hell for all eternity. And he's saying you ought to fear walking in unbelief. You ought to be afraid. In our day when everybody's right and every opinion's equal, which by the way is not true, not everybody's right, not every opinion is equal. Yes, we can listen to people and, and, and hear what they have to say, but that doesn't mean that what they're saying is true. The truth is not relative. There are some things that are true if nothing else is true. One of those things is the word of God. It is true. You can count on it. What it says about heaven is true. What it says about hell is true. What it says about salvation is true. What it says about judgment is true. What it says about each of us having to give an account is true. We should fear not believing the Bible because the Bible is not just a book, as we're going to see in verse 12. It is alive. It is active. It is powerful. Look at it in verse 2. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. You know what that's saying? If you hear a sermon and it doesn't activate faith in your heart that you act on and respond to, you wasted your time. In fact, honestly, what you did is you not only wasted your time, you accumulated judgment on your life because someday you'll give an account. This is a solemn thing. It's a solemn thing. You say, boy, I'm... I was coming to be encouraged. You will be. <laughs> but we all have to understand that unto whom much is given, much is expected. And when you hear the word of God, but don't respond to the word of God, you're still responsible for the word of God you heard. It's a fearful thing to hear God speak through his word. And this is God speaking right there. And then do nothing with it. And to think somehow it doesn't matter because someday you'll give an account for everything you heard and what you did or did not do with it. Coming to church will not save you. 
Being a good person will not save you. Giving money will not save you. The issue is, what are you going to do with what you hear? And not responding by faith to the word of God is a dangerous thing. You can miss heaven. And the tragedy is, God has made this promise of salvation. That if you respond in faith, you'll be born again. You'll become a brand new person in Christ. The sad reality is that many people live never really knowing the joy of walking with God. They don't know the peace of having their sins forgiven. They don't know the joy of personally knowing God, not just knowing about him, but actually knowing him and having him, him speak to their heart and having a living, growing relationship with him. There's nothing in the world like it. And you get that by faith. That's the promise of God. Then there's some pictures. There's a promise of rest. There's pictures of rest that he gives us. And the writer of Hebrews gives us four pictures of rest. And what he's going to do is he's going to go through basically four different eras in the Bible. Now, when you get to, to verse 3 down through verse 11 or verse 10, it, it can be a little bit uh, abstract. So I'm going to try to make it as simple as I can so you can follow what he's saying. He gives us four pictures of salvation or Sabbath rest. The first picture is one of just enjoying a relationship with God, and it's, it's based on creation, on the Garden of Eden, that time when Adam and Eve were there with God on the seventh day. They were created on the sixth day. On the seventh day, God rested. Look at it in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger I took an oath, they'll never enter my place of rest even though this rest has been ready since he made the world. From the beginning of time, God, God planned a salvation for you and I. We know it is ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. On the seventh day, God looked at everything, and he not only, every other day he says it's good, but on the seventh day, he looks at creation, and he not only says it's good, he says it's very good. And he rests not because he's tired, because omnipotence knows no fatigue. He rests because he simply wants to enjoy his creation. And what part of his creation is he most interested in enjoying? It's not the beauty of the landscape. It's not the stars in the sky. It's two people, Adam and Eve. And he enjoys the relationship with them and the fellowship with them. And there's no work and there's no worry, just joy and relationship with God. It was literally heaven on earth. And there's a very real sense when you open your heart to God, what happens is heaven comes into your heart. And you begin that walk with God, that relationship of joy. You, you have the opportunity to never worry again. You say, but well, John, I have worries and I'm a believer. It's because you worry instead of believing God. You know, Paul is very clear. Be anxious for nothing. You say, what do I do? In everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, 
Make your request known to God. Watch this. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your heart and your mind. It's a Sabbath rest. There's a second picture. This one has to do with God's desire to bless people. Look at it in verse 5. But in the other passage, God said, they'll never enter my place of rest. So God's rest is there for people to enter, but those who first heard this good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the, the children of Israel. God had a place of rest for them. It was the promised land. He said to them, listen, here's what God did. God had a plan. His desire was to do good to them. And God said, I'm going to deliver you from slavery in Egypt. And I'm going to take you to a beautiful land, an incredible land. And I'm going to give you this land. And do you know what? They wouldn't believe him. They're like, well, I don't know whether it's that great. I kind of miss the slavery in Egypt. See, that's the warped way that a person who is trapped by sin thinks, somehow thinking that slavery in Egypt would be better than living in freedom in the promised land, somehow thinking better to control my own life in this life than to, to do anything that would keep me from doing that, and heaven can't be that good. Are you kidding me? It's the blindness of unbelief. But they wouldn't believe him, and so that generation was not allowed to enter the land. The point being, unbelief keeps people from experiencing the goodness of God. Verse 8, look at it. Now, if Joshua, remember Joshua follows Moses, takes him into the promised land, had succeeded in giving them this rest. Here's the point. He took them into the promised land, which is a picture of God's rest, but the picture only points to a greater reality. The picture, or the, the land was a physical reality, but God's salvation and, and knowing him is a spiritual reality. And the spiritual realities are always greater than the physical realities. Why is that? Because the physical realities don't last. This world and everything in it's gonna pass away. That's why Paul says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal, 2 Corinthians 4. So God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. If the promised land had been his rest, he wouldn't have talked about another day. What is that day? It's today. It's salvation. It's available right now. The promised land wasn't God's ultimate destination for his people. Heaven is. Heaven is God's ultimate destination for you. And I'm telling you, if you had, though the Bible gives us insight, but one second in heaven, you will be overcome by what God has prepared for you. It's a third picture. This is a picture of hearing God's voice because what happens is when you and I are walking with the Lord in salvation, you're going to hear his voice. He speaks to all people. He talks to people in dreams. He talks to people in visions. He gives people spiritual encounters even before they know him. I am increasingly convinced it happens to everybody because the more I'm around people, the longer I pastor, and the more conversations I have with people, the more I'm convinced that God reveals himself to people in a variety of ways. The book of Job talks about that. For example, we're drilling wells because of your generosity 
in Nigeria, around in Nigeria, uh, several wells. And David was talking with um, David Bongiorno, who's overseeing that. And he said this, in the places where we've drilled the wells, already they've had three imams, which are Muslim leaders, who when they came to get water to drink, the gospel was shared, and three of the imams said they had had a vision of a man in white. And when they heard the gospel, they knew that was who the man was. It's very cool, isn't it? And there's many right now in the Muslim world, there are many, many uh, accounts of Jesus appearing to Muslims and appearing to Muslim imams, talking to them. God wants to speak to people. We begin to hear his voice. Look at this. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. God announced this through David much later. This is King David in the Bible. In the words already quoted, which this is the third time they're quoted, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. What David's saying is centuries after the promised land, they'd entered it. He's saying, listen, there is a, an opportunity to know God in a spiritual way, in a life-changing way. And when you know him, you'll hear his voice. And God is calling you right now to that. So don't harden your heart. Don't say no. Don't give in to unbelief and say, well, I don't know. One of the great joys of a salvation relationship is God speaks to you. And then there's a fourth picture. That picture is today. So there is a special rest still waiting. Waiting for when? Waiting for you? Waiting for now? Today. To enter for the people of God. There's time to give your heart to Christ today. There's time to do it now. God has waited for you for today. So maybe you'll wait for tomorrow. Maybe. Maybe you won't. Maybe this is the last sermon you'll hear. I don't get any pleasure in saying it. But I do know it's, it's very possible that for some, this is the last time. Maybe it's the last time you go to church. Maybe it's the last time God really speaks to your heart in a way that convicts you to draw you to him. Today is the day of salvation. So we've seen the promise of rest, pictures of rest. Now, here's the plan for rest. Look at it. Verse 10. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. You don't come to salvation lethargically, half-heartedly. You come with your whole heart, giving all of yourself to Christ. And so many times people, when they do that, they think like they're really giving God a peach. And then later they find out that they didn't give him as much as he gave them. You'll never outgive God. No matter what you think you bring to the table, what he gives you is so much bigger, so much more wonderful. Here's what it's saying, and as you look at this, for all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors. Most people go through life trying to be something they're not trying to measure up to themselves with their conscience constantly telling them, you didn't do this, you're not that, you need to do better there. 
or trying to measure up to others. Some go through life trying to get God's approval. In fact, that's, when you look at the world religions, that's what it's all about, people trying to earn God's approval. That's the big difference between Christianity and every other religion because as Christians, we don't work for God's approval. We live with joy because we have his approval. Big difference. We don't serve God because we have to. We do it because we want to. There is a salvation rest. And this is the reason why Jesus came to offer it. He said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, I've come that they might have life and might have it to the fullest. The message puts it more and better than they ever dreamed of. Salvation is more full, more wonderful. It is better than you could imagine. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. He's the only way. He says in John chapter 3 this, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. When you come to him, you're born again. You are changed. It's like it's a brand new you. It's like you've been born all over again. Paul puts it this way. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, everything's new. Brand new you. That's why it's called being born again. Then in verse 7, he says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. You need to. It's not optional. It's essential. You say, how am I born again? Well, Romans chapter 10, quoted all the time, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You ask God to save you, he will save you. So we've looked at the promise We've looked at the pictures of rest, the plan for rest. One final thing, the penalty of rejecting God's rest. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11 says this, so let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God, how would you disobey God? I don't want to be born again. Jesus says you must, and you're, if, you're not, if you're not willing to be born again, you're saying, I don't want to. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. Now, what did they do wrong? And I want to take you back to verse 2 because I want you to see this. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them. Why didn't the word of God benefit them? Because it was not mixed with faith. See, you can hear all the word you want, but if you don't believe it, it doesn't make a difference in your life. So when you put your faith in it, when you say, I believe it, I believe it's true, I believe it's real, I believe it's right. And there's something very powerful about the word. The word has the power to change a person's life. Peter says this, I think it's in 1 Peter 1.26. You were transformed by the living and the enduring word of God. It's powerful enough to move you from darkness to light. It's powerful to take you from being lost to, to knowing God, from being unsaved, headed to hell, to being saved, headed to heaven. The word of God has that kind of power. They didn't believe the word. How powerful is the word? Well, verse 12 
Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. If you hold a Bible in your hand, and I'm not unsympathetic to people who use electronic Bibles, you use your iPad. I do most of my Bible reading off my iPad. I just like it. I can underline it. I can cross it. I can do some things so much quicker, so much easier. And plus, as I'm getting older, it's easier to read. But whether it's on your phone, your iPad, or in a printed book, that Bible is powerful. That word is active. Those aren't old words written by dead people. They are living words written by the Spirit of God as he spoke through men, as he spoke through women over the course of time to deliver God's heart to you and I. It's living, it's active, it's powerful. When you read it, it changes you. When you read it, you encounter God. When you read it, something happens. What happens? Well, he tells us it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it penetrates. What he's saying is when you pick up the Bible and you read it, you, it, it does divine surgery on you. Surgery you and I need. Surgery that is valuable. You say, like what? It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit. What it's saying is the word of God cuts to the core of our life. It divides the soul and the spirit. It, it separates them. It severs the two. See, what happens is when you're saved, your spirit is the redeemed part of the inner you. Totally transformed. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you're made alive. You're given a living spirit in that moment that's alive to God. What happens is now there's a battle inside of you because your soul has not yet been redeemed. That's the unredeemed part of the inner you. So let's think of the soul as the sum of the intellect, what I think, the emotion, the affections of my heart, and the will, what I decide to do. All of that's not been redeemed yet. So what happens is for the Christian, we have to learn how to handle our soul. You can't assume the inner voice is your spirit speaking. Maybe, may not. That's why the word of God helps you sort all that out. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher of the last century, said the main art of spiritual living is you got to know how to handle yourself. you got to know how to speak to your soul. Psalmist did it in Psalm 42. Listen to what he says. My soul, why art thou downcast within me? He talks to himself. Lloyd-Jones says you've got to learn to talk to yourself, abrade yourself, to rebuke yourself, to say, soul, why are you disquieted? Why are you downcast? Put your hope in God rather than acting in this depressed way. He'll say it three different times in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. It's what the, David is saying in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his soul. He's saying, soul, you're going to do what you don't want to do. You're going to bless the Lord. Some of you, the reason why you won't sing in church is because you don't control your soul. Because your soul's telling you, you don't have a voice. 
You don't want to sing. You don't feel like singing. You don't need to sing. And you know what? That's the soul. That's not your spirit. Because your voice is so beautiful to God, even if it isn't to any other person, you'd be winning American Idol if God was the judge. But see, some of you, you, you can't separate the soul from the spirit. So you just let your soul govern you and run you, and you don't, you, but the word of God begins to divide the two. So suddenly you can understand when the spirit's speaking, you can understand when the soul is speaking. Listen, the soul says, you'll lose that person unless you compromise your spiritual or your sexual purity. The soul says stuff like, no one will notice you unless you dress seductively. The soul tells you, oh, cheat on your taxes. It doesn't matter. They'll never miss it. The soul tells you, your life will be wasted and happiness will be impossible unless you get the divorce. The soul tells you, oh, unless you tell that off-color joke, unless you use the language of the world, people won't like you. That's the soul. And the word of God does surgery on you and it separates that sin-influenced part of you from your spirit so that your spirit can lead you and if we walk by the spirit, we'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But you can't do that on your own. You gotta have the word of God divide it. You gotta have it do surgery on you. You gotta have it show you what godly priorities, what, what, what God is about, what he wants to do. When you get in the word of God, instantly your spirit is energized to begin to direct you in what is most valuable and what is most, most worthwhile in life. This is why when, when, when you don't read the Bible, you're setting yourself up for a massive failure. Because every single day, I need the word of God to do surgery on me. Every day I pick up my Bible. I'm just telling you, this is what I do. Lord, this is your word. May I love it more than ever. May you show, my, show me who I am through it. Rebuke me where I need it. Encourage me where I need it. And let it live to me. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. You need the word of God. It's that powerful. Not only that, look, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's very interesting. It not only affects your thinking and your psyche, it affects your body. Psalm 107 verse 20 says, he sent his word, living and active, and healed them, snatching them from the door of death. I studied that and prayed even during the service today, is this for the people? And it is. Someone listening to this message has a fatal disease in the marrow of your bones. And the healing power of the Lord Jesus, the word of God made incarnate, will heal you right now if you'll put your faith in him. In Jesus' name. Notice as you go back to chapter 4 and verse 12, it's active, sharp, 
separates the soul and the spirit, touches our body. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. As you read the Bible, it'll call you out. They'll say, oh, that's you. And then it'll lift you up. It will rebuke you and it will renew your mind. It's powerful. It's active. It's real. It's true. That's why you need to believe it. Verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. The Bible talks repeatedly about this. Psalm 33 puts it this way. The Lord looks down from heaven and sees the whole human race. From his throne, he observes all who live on the earth. He's observing you. He saw you when you got up this morning. He saw you as you got in the car to come here. He heard the conversation that was going on. Oh, he, he's aware of everything. He made their hearts so he understands everything they do. He knows the human heart. He understands it. He knows what's happening. Psalm 139 puts it this way. Oh, Lord, you've examined my heart. You know everything about me. You never tell God one thing about you he didn't already know. You know when I sit down or stand up. What's that saying? God is watching you. He's watching. He knows what's happening in your life. You know my thoughts. Even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it. All of that amplifies what we read in Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He knows everything about you. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets, your hidden sin. And if you don't know Jesus is your Savior, someday you'll give an account for everything. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This is Jesus. Matthew 12. Men, on that day, men will give an account of every idle word they've spoken. Every careless word you'll give an account for. Hebrews 9 says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So, every single person faces a choice. They can believe the word of God that Jesus came to die for our sin and took our place and bore our punishment so that our sin would be erased under the cleansing flow of his precious blood. And their, the record of sin debts canceled because you gave your heart to Jesus. Or you can say, I don't believe that stuff. And in saying that, and in saying, I don't want to get saved, I don't want to give my heart to Christ, what you're saying is, I'm okay with standing before the one whose eyes burn with fire and giving an explanation for every idle word I've spoken and every evil deed I've ever done. 
And I think when you make that choice, you ought to understand exactly what that looks like. Revelation chapter 20, this is a grace from God. He would not tell us we're gonna face judgment without telling us what it would be like and the basis for it. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. Who's that? It's Jesus. All judgment's been entrusted to the Son. And the earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. What is that? It's the instantaneous uncreation of the earth in a moment. He holds it all together. He lets go. It's gone. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. You say, what's this book of life? When you give your heart to Christ, your name's written in the book of life. Some places call it the Lamb's Book of Life. It's a record of the redeemed. God cares so much that when you give your heart to Christ, angels celebrate and your name's written down. And the dead, this is the unrighteous dead. This is not Christians. Christians aren't here. Christians are in heaven. But the unrighteous dead are going to give an account according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Every, every evil word, every careless word, Every evil thought, every evil deed, recorded. You say, why? Because God will have no one go to hell who doesn't know why they're going there. You did this, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. The sea gave up the dead, the death and grave gave up the dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. It's almost like God says, after, he's, after the judgment is almost complete, he says, stop, let's check the book of life one more time. You don't receive Christ, that's it. That's where you're headed. And that's the word of God. Or you receive, you receive Christ, and in Colossians, Paul puts it this way. He forgave all our sins, and he canceled the record of the charges against us. That big, long rap sheet, the books that record everything, canceled. Took it away, nailed it to the cross, and on the way, he disarmed spiritual rulers and authorities. He stopped the power of hell from attacking you, all because you came to Jesus Christ. And so your choice comes down to will you believe the word of God, which is accurate, which is true, which is alive, which is living, which will transform your life, or will you not? That's what it all comes down to. You can operate in unbelief or you can operate in faith. If you believe the word of God, you'll be saved, you'll, or you'll rededicate your life, and you will know, know a joy and a power and a peace and a presence of the Lord like you cannot begin to imagine. And you, my friend, will be headed for an eternity with him that is greater than any of us can comprehend. That's the choice. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't give in to unbelief. Not to make a decision is unbelief. So I got to think about it. Well, you have today. You have right now. You don't have tomorrow. That's why Paul says today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed hour.